Good morning, Ozark. I hope you're doing well this morning. Why don't you turn to somebody around you and say, good morning, friend. (laughs) Truth is, I don't know if you're friends, but I do know something deeper about you. We're in this series where we're studying the church and we talked about why church and we talked about what is the church and we learned some important things about what the church is. Beth talked about how the church is the body of Christ. Why don't you look at each other and say, good morning, body. I thought about having you say good morning body part, but that's just a strange thing to say to somebody, you know? And then uh, Brother Mark talked about how we're the bride of Christ. So look at each other again and say good morning bride. Spiritually, okay? Don't get any weird ideas. And then John told us that we are a family. Say, look at each other and say good morning fam. We'll just keep it general. Yeah. And all of these are our ways of talking about the church. So one more time to the room as a whole, say, good morning, church. Good morning, church. That's good. In the church, there is one Lord, one master, one Messiah, one king, one alpha and omega, one everything, one caller of shots, one maker of rules, one CEO, one healer of fools, one image, one glory, one star of the story, one kingpin, one boss, one who died on that cross. Only this one brings life from above. Only this one offers perfect love. Only this one issues unqualified commands because only this one sits at the Father's right hand. It is not me, yeah. And it is not you. To belong to the church is to not be in charge. We are the church. We are first and foremost followers. Our text for this morning is Numbers chapter 12. I'm sure you brought your Bible because it's chapel and you don't get to use your phone. So I'm gonna give you a minute to turn to Numbers chapter 12. You probably don't spend a lot of time in Numbers unless you like Numbers (laughs) and lists of names. But there's a lot of power packed in some of these narratives. Numbers chapter 12 is what we're gonna look at together. And we're gonna get to our text in a roundabout sort of way this morning. So I wanna just read it together, make sure it's fresh in our minds and to really kind of think through and process through what the Lord may indeed be saying to us through uh, Numbers chapter 12. It's not a long chapter, we're gonna read the whole thing. Here's what it says. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he'd married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and he summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there was a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. 
And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, please, God, heal her. And the Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been a disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. That is not a light story. So, obviously, we should play a game. Anybody up for some Simon Says? You guys know how this works. Go ahead and stand up. Apparently, you don't know how this works because you all lost because Simon didn't say. But I'll give you a second option. Simon Says, stand up. It's okay. I was cheap, I know. All right. All right, you know how this works. If Simon says it, you do it. If Simon doesn't say it, you don't. Simon says, raise your right hand. Now raise your left hand. Wow, some of you are really not good at this. Okay, let's see. Simon says, clap twice. Now lay down on the floor like Emma Abishan. No, we're not going to do that. Good job. I know she's great. I love it. All right, Simon says, look at somebody next to you and say, I'm sorry. Simon says, look at him again and say, I was wrong. Simon says, finish that conversation later. (laughs) This is for one section of the room, and Simon says, make a decision to come to Ozark. Amen? I'm just kidding. You guys just follow the Lord. All right, y'all can have a seat. Game over. Simon doesn't matter anymore. You're welcome to sit down. The game is over. You guys are fine. You did great. Good job. Well done. I'll be real, I always hated that game, man. I just never liked it. I didn't really like follow the leader either, but Simon Says is the worst. And that's just because you have to do silly things like touch your nose and you know try to know if you're supposed to try to lick your elbow or whatever, but it's like, who is this Simon person bossing people around with this arbitrary authority? This kind of seems like a punk. Anyway, I don't really, I don't really, I don't, I don't really like being told what to do. I don't know if anybody else in the room is like this. I like to call the shots. I like to be in charge. I want to do what I want to do. And if I'm being honest, a lot of the times I want you to do what I want you to do. That's just, that's just my natural bent, you know? And I've always been kind of subtle about my punkishness, about my sort of self selfishness. My mother's in the room. She can testify. I was a pretty good kid, you know, when I was growing up, but, uh, I just wanted to do things my way. You know, Beth talked a few weeks ago about some of the differences between us, and they are many, and they are entertaining. (laughs) And one of the other ones is Beth's kind of a rule follower, not like over the top, but she's a little bit of a rule follower. She like walks on the sidewalks and stuff. That's not really how I'm wired. And it's not that I'm, I don't really think I'm a rule breaker. I just like to get enough power to change the rules and then follow my rules, you know, the new ones. The, the better ones. I see this in my son, so we're like a couple of old men. We like to play games together. We play backgammon and Yahtzee and all this kind of stuff, and, and we'll be playing a game, and he'll be like, hey, Daddy, I got, I got an idea for a new rule for playing Yahtzee, you know? It's like, I think, I think this would be a good thing. And I'm like, well, what do you think, buddy? Like, it's an old game. It works pretty well, but what's your idea? 
I think maybe the younger person playing should have an extra role every time. <laughs> like that only benefits you, man. Oh, sure enough, huh. It's a good idea though, right, Daddy? You know, that's kind of how our conversations go. And if, if, you, if you ask my sisters, playing games with me when I was younger was not very different than that, so I think he comes by it naturally. Um, but anyway, enough of my sin. Back to Simon. <laughs> so I was curious, like, why is it that we give this, like, where does it come from? Who is this Simon character so that we give him so much deference? And I tried to research and dig deeply, and all I could find was that the only reason we call it Simon Says is because the name Simon starts with the same letter as the word says. Like, that's it. I knew it. So in addition to being a punk, he's a fraud. You should not listen to Simon. Anyway, to belong to the church is to not be in charge. And the fact that the words follow and Jesus don't start with the same letter is of course totally irrelevant. He's not a fraud. His authority is not arbitrary and he's in charge. Maybe you picked that up from some of the metaphors that we've been um, looking through together over the last month as, as a community. You know, we're the body, he, he's the head. We're the bride, he's the groom. We're the family, he's in this case the older brother, but he's ontologically one with the father, so there is that, you know? And in various ways, not always in the same way, in various ways these metaphors indicate to us that he is the leader and our job is to follow. You, you know the language of follow. You see it in the Gospels pretty frequently. It's there dozens and dozens of times, and it's almost always about our relationship to Jesus. And you know, he says, if you want to be my apprentice, then you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's the word. And, and it's important, I think, for us to think about this for a few minutes, because we, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but when, when I think about ways I use the word follow just normally today, uh, one of the most common contexts for this for us is social media, where we follow each other. And think about it, in this world of social media, for me to follow you just means I'm expressing an interest in what you have to say. Now, I don't have to have any certain attitude toward what you say. I don't have to agree with what you say. I certainly don't have to submit to what you say to be your follower. I might follow you so that I can make fun of you. <laughs> I might follow you so that I can disagree with you and feel smart. I might follow you so that you'll follow me back. There's all sorts of ways we follow one another. And I think we've maybe, I don't know, maybe this is a little unfair, but I think we've maybe shifted the meaning of follow because I don't think I'm the only person who doesn't really love the normal meaning. John told us a few weeks ago that if you want to understand a metaphor, you kind of got to know what the metaphor is doing. And so you have an idea from a source domain and you're using it to understand a, a target domain or concept. And in this case, the target is our relationship with Jesus. And, and we use the language of follow in order to understand our relationship with Jesus. And follow is the language from, from the, the realm of physical movement of travel, to follow someone literally is to allow them to determine where you go, to let them direct your steps. And this is true of following Jesus in a literal sense, but it's also true in this expanded sense. We let him direct our steps. We, we allow him to tell us what to do. We give him control over the things that we can control. There's a lot of life you can't control. You can't control what happens around you. You can't always control what you feel in any given situation, but you can control to a degree what you think. You can control what you say, you can control what you do, and so to follow Jesus is to give him authority over the things that we think and say and do. I mean, to put it concrete, it's like if Jesus walked in the door and came right down through the middle or maybe made his way up to the balcony, if he walked in the room and just kind of walked straight up to you, we're all just sort of watching, he walks straight up to you and he says to you, it's time to stop putting it off. You know what I want you to do, so do it. Do you know what he'd be talking about? 
Like if you do know what he'd be talking about, but you're not willing to do it, you probably shouldn't call yourself a follower because you're still acting like you're in charge. Can I give you two truths that don't mix real well? On the one hand, the church is a dangerous place for people who want to be in charge. I take this to be fairly self-evident. If you've paid attention to the ways in which people hurt the church when they crave power, you get what I mean. It's a dangerous, terrible place for people who want to be in charge. On the other hand, ministry is super attractive to people who want attention and or power. I saw this quote recently, I heard it on podcast, Mortification of Spin, then it was making its way across Twitter. There's this guy, Carl Truman, who said, here's his words, he says, if you're a narcissist and you don't wanna put in the hard work to become a lawyer or a surgeon, then becoming a pastor is not a bad way to go. Dang, dang, one more time, dang. See, the ugly truth is that many of you want to do ministry because you want to be an influencer, and so you tack on for God at the end of that. Really, you just want to be an influencer, and this seems to you like probably the best way to gain a platform or to have a hearing. For some of you, you tend to win in life. You know what it is to have social power, and you figure the best way to get or to keep it or to have more of it is to speak on behalf of the guy at the very top. You know, you're savvy enough to recognize that nobody has more power than the person who speaks for God. So I'll speak for the guy at the very top, and that will keep me elevated as far as it goes. For others, let's be honest, it's not so much that you've had this string of victories, it's that you haven't, but you want them. You've always sort of been just outside the top and you've not really got the attention that you crave or the respect that you think you deserve. I don't know why, maybe you were in a context where it was a sports town and you're not an athlete or it's a music school and you're not really good at music or maybe you're not like rich or conventionally attractive or full of charisma and whatever the reasons are, you just like want this and, and so you think, man, this is my way to be noticed. This is my way to finally get what's mine. And I don't mean to sound harsh, this is probably unfair, it is unfair. It's not true that you're motivated solely by ego or insecurity or a cold, empty heart. Right, so now that we've established that you're not Satan, <laughs> can we also admit that you don't hate the idea of lots of people cheering your name? Whether it's because of just straight pride or a place of pain or some combination of the two, and even if your visions don't involve largesse or grandeur, even if it's not about a huge stage and thousands of followers, even if you don't care about being ministry famous, can we just acknowledge that you don't hate the idea of other people doing what you say? Following Jesus is, is difficult sometimes, in part because Jesus doesn't always come through for you in the way that you think he should. It's not that Jesus is harsh or mean. No, he's the most gentle and patient person. Hard stop. But he's not gonna play by your rules and he expects you to be okay with that. I mean, we're talking about someone who one time said to one of his best friends, when that best friend was trying to keep Jesus from harm, he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of men. So following Jesus can be hard sometimes, but at the same time, comparatively, following Jesus is relatively easy because he's Jesus. Like following him makes sense. That same best friend, when Jesus asked him, do you wanna go somewhere else? He said, no, where would I go? Like, where would we go? You have the words of life. We're in it with you because you're Jesus. And as annoying as it can be sometimes to you know, be friends with somebody who's literally never wrong, you know he's never wrong. He's perfect. And it's not hard to trust somebody who's perfectly wise and thoroughly loving and all 
of those things. So it would be nice if like we could stop here, if we could just be done a little bit early. You know, if I came to you today to say, hey, you're supposed to follow Jesus. And you'd say, hey, thanks for the reminder. And I'd say, hey, you're welcome. And then somebody would say, scan your cards on the way out. And then we'd go on and do whatever it is we're going to be doing next. But we can't stop there because we're not done. Because in theory, Aaron and Miriam didn't have any problem following God. It was just this Moses guy. And in the church, Jesus is actually not the only one we're called to follow. Well, he has no rival or competitor, but he does send delegates. He sends apostles and prophets to tell us what to think and say and do. And then underneath their authority, he sends elders and pastors and deacons and teachers and mentors and directors and and all sorts of leaders. And following Jesus means following whomever Jesus tells us to follow. That's kind of the point of this. And this is the point at which what I'm saying right now makes me a little bit nervous. This is the point at which I want to start offering disclaimers. Like disclaimer, sometimes leaders are not good. Sometimes leaders abuse their power. And I'm conscious of the fact that some of the things I'm saying and will continue to say today have been said to people who were being abused by an illegitimate leader in order to just keep them in place. That's not what I'm saying. If you're being led by or find yourself under the authority of an illegitimate abusive leader, then get out and tell the appropriate people so that hopefully these things can be dealt with and if necessary, exposed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you're following a legit leader, maybe not a great leader, maybe not a good leader, maybe not the leader that you agree with, but a leader that you've been called for a season to follow. That's what we're talking about. I also want to offer a disclaimer that following well doesn't mean sitting silently by and never pushing back. No, no, be bold, be courageous, at times push back, take risks, make mistakes. But in all this and through all this, you support and you submit. You support your leaders. I talked to a buddy of mine who's been in ministry for about 15 years, and we used to counsel each other through our 20s when we were following and trying to figure out how to do this well. how to manage all of the tensions involved. And I texted him just the other day and I said, hey, what's the most important thing you've learned about following? He's now a leader. And he texted me right away. And he said, here's what, you need to, here's what people need to do. He said, people need to, he said, ask God to give you the ability to serve your leader however it helps them win and to find joy in their victory without you caring one bit about how much credit or recognition you yourself get. That's support. You support your leader and you submit to your leader. Most of us will spend most of our lives under someone else's authority, especially for you right now and in the first decade or so of your post-college ministry. And one of the most valuable habits that you can form now and in those years is just to like stop yapping and get to work, to stop complaining and criticizing and to spend more time praying and just doing what you're told to do. Give up the authority to lead, follow. And that's worse than playing Simon Says. I wish it was harder for me to understand uh, Aaron and Miriam. It's not. Following is hard. Now, I believe that the gospel enables us to follow because it frees us from the need to be in charge. That's the sermon I wanted to preach. When I first got the assignment of followers, I thought, I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to talk about how the gospel frees us from the need to be in charge because it tells us that our value has nothing to do with whether we have access to power. And I think a lot of you actually believe somewhere in your heart that your value is determined by your access to power. And that belief is going to get you and others in a lot of trouble. And that's what I wanted to kind of lean into. But then I found Numbers 12 and I'm trying to let the text win. So I think that's in there. 
there, but we need to lean hard into this. And I think it is connected because the gospel may free us from the need to be in charge, but the actual experience of following imperfect men and women forces our bodies and minds into alignment with what we say we believe, and it's hard. Speaking of Numbers 12, this text really did kind of surprise me a little bit. I learned a lot of hard lessons in my 20s that I didn't realize, like I actually could have learned them with less pain if I had just paid attention to Numbers chapter 12. There's a lot in here about what to do when you don't want to follow, don't want to follow who you're apparently called to follow. And we'll limit ourselves to four brief bits of wisdom from the word, four things when you don't want to follow. Here's the first one. Realize that this is between you and the Lord. This is kind of what we've been saying all morning because I really think that this is the most important thing to gather from this text. The problems that you have following, I don't know, the Ozark rules, your RA, your RD, the pastor at the church where you work, the elders who oversee you, the problems that you have following them, when you don't want to follow them, this is most of all the thing between you and the Lord. I want you to notice in our story, God's response to this situation. So Aaron and Miriam begin to speak against Moses and God doesn't say, you guys need to go work this out together. Go over there and talk amongst yourselves and figure out your problems. No, he calls a meeting where he is presiding and he's the one who does the talking and he makes it very clear that he's going to address this head on because this is about him. In the context of Numbers 11 and 12, you see this even more clearly. 11 and 12 in Numbers are all about these complaints. There's this triad of complaints. Chapter 11 begins with this general complaint against God, and God answers with this like fire that comes out from him. And then the bulk of 11 is, is the complaint against God because of the food that he's providing. They're tired of manna. They're sick of this bread type stuff, and so God sends them you know, some, some birds, and then he actually sends them a plague and judgment upon their complaints. And so you have this complaint, complaint, and here you have a complaint about about leadership. And in all of these ways, the people are demonstrating their discontent in God himself. Moses and Iriam's discontent with Moses is an assault on what God has provided for the good of his people. And how well you follow legitimate leaders demonstrates how much you trust in God, how deeply you understand and believe the gospel. Sometimes I hear the voice of God most clearly through the stories of some of my friends, and I'll never forget a story one of my friends tells about a time early in his ministry, and he was just kind of starting out, and, and he was trying to deceive a very gifted young man. He was trying to figure out what should I do, where should I go, how should I serve, and, and he had had a couple of local churches who had expressed an interest in him coming to serve in that capacity, and he also was involved in like some traveling ministries where you stand up on big stages and talk to hundreds of teenagers, and he was very entertaining. It was a lot of fun. There was a rush involved in this, and it's not that that's bad, but he was just trying to discern which of these two do you want me to do? And, and like God usually does, some of you know this by experience, God wasn't saying A or B. He was just sort of walking along with him. And uh, one time he said he was just about to come up on the stage at one of these events. And as soon as his foot hit the very top floor of the stage, he just heard from the spirit, not audibly, but straight into his mind and heart. The spirit said to him, find joy in being unknown. That's what I want you to do. And I think about when I look at this story, and I want to tweak it a little bit. Find joy in following. Can you find joy in following? Because if you can't find joy in following, then the joy you find in leading probably isn't the joy of the Lord. It's joy in your sovereignty, not his. Can you trust in his sovereignty when you're not in charge? When you're not in the position that you think you're supposed to be in? Like, y'all, I've been there. 
I often thought, I often thought in my early years of ministry, man, if I was 10 years older, I'd be given more influence and authority and I could make the decisions that probably should be made in this situation. And it hit me at some point, you know, if God wanted me to be 10 years older, he would have put me on the earth 10 years previously. If he wanted you guys to be in charge of things right now, then you wouldn't be older than you are. Like you've got to at some level embrace God's sovereignty in your life in these particular ways. So most importantly, do not be deceived. When you look at your leader and you say, I should have more power and he should have less, you might actually be looking at God saying, I could run things better than you. You gotta realize that this is between you and the Lord. And secondly, you gotta guard what you think and say about your leader and yourself. I find it interesting to notice how this story begins. Moses and Aaron and Miriam begin to speak against Moses. And if you strain your ears, it's like you can almost hear them defending themselves. Well, I'm just saying. Well, don't just say, well, it's true. He's got a Cushite wife. Hasn't he read, you know, the law of Moses that he's supposed to marry an Israelite? Okay, so so in this case, like, so what if it's true? Like, there's all sorts of true things that don't need to be said out loud. It's true that you're wearing a particular color of underwear right now, but nobody needs to know that information. You know what I'm saying? Just keep it in your mouth. Just don't say anything at all. And part of what I think they hear in this text is, hey, listen, if you can't say anything edifying, then keep Moses' name out of your mouth. And maybe we need to hear the same thing. We gotta watch what we say about our leaders. And what we say is, of course, just like in this story, it's in our experience and manifestation of what's going on in here and in here. So guard what you think. I can tell you how this poison enters your mind stream. You start to increasingly notice your strengths and your leader's flaws. And if you don't notice them, other people will do it for you. Oh, we like when he preaches, but we just love when you're up. But we just really like the fact that you make decisions. Nobody else around here seems to make decisions. This will happen to you. And what will take place is, like when you got the job, you came in humble. Most of you came in humble anyway. So you came in like humble and low and you had a a fairly high view of your leader or you probably wouldn't have taken the job. But over time, you start to pay attention to their strengths and it brings them down a little bit. And you start to pay attention, or their flaws, I mean, you start to pay attention to your strengths and it brings you up a little bit. You're getting smarter, you're getting wiser. This is evening out. And you start to compare yourself favorably to this leader until you get to a point where you think, man, I should probably be the one who's in charge. And by the time you say those things, you are in trouble, at least according to Numbers 12. So when you notice that happening, you gotta stop your thoughts right then and there. It's either irrelevant or untrue, these thoughts that you're having. So you need to assume that your leader knows more than you are assuming and that you are not yet as ministry savvy as you think. And you need to repent and you need to guard what you say and think. Third thing I think you see in this text is uh, go to Starbucks in your leader's socks. I know there's no coffee in Numbers chapter 12, although I think John could find it in the Hebrew if he really wanted to. (laughs) It's a weird way of putting it, but I think it'll make sense. You've heard it said, walk a mile in their shoes, but we're gonna crank it up a notch. You guys are totally gonna make fun of me for this, but I don't even care. Sometimes I have to do concrete things uh, in order to get my mind in the right place. And I remember it was uh, during those years when I was working, I was working at a church uh, called Real Life Church for a man named Rusty George, who's a good friend and a good leader even to this day. And uh, I was early in my ministry and I was just frustrated with him, you know? And it's like, I just feel like he should be making this decision, not that decision. And why isn't he softer on this and bolder on that and all these different things. And, and I'm 
not like naturally good at empathy. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> but uh, so I'm like, I gotta do something physically to like get myself in, in the mode of thinking about his world. And so he used to wear these like funky looking gray crew socks. I used to always make fun of him for it. So I went to, I went to Walmart and I bought some gray crew socks and I put on the gray crew socks and then I went to Starbucks and I ordered his drink, a tall Americano with no room. I didn't know what that was until this point. And I would just buy his drink and sit there in matching socks to his and I would just think about his day, just sipping my coffee thinking about his responsibilities, thinking about his meetings, thinking about the pressures of his job. And it was fascinating, like at one level it worked because I started to realize that my job was a whole lot easier than his job. And that there was a lot less at stake in my opinions than there was in his opinions. But something happened that I didn't expect. It wasn't just about empathy. What I had designed as a discipline of empathy became an exercise in humility. Because in addition to feeling the pressures that he had that I didn't have, I also realized how little I knew about what God may have called him to do. How do I know that God hasn't spoken to him and told him, hey, this is how this church needs to be led at this time? A lot of gray area in terms of how to make some of these decisions. How do I know that he's not listening to the Lord? I don't see his time with Jesus. I don't know what the Lord is saying to him through the scriptures or whether God might have put a specific burden on his heart. And I didn't know this until looking back at this text, but my experience matches what takes place right here in Numbers chapter 12. I mean, this is intense. God pulls them aside, Aaron and Miriam, and he says, you'll know how I talk to you. You don't know how I talk to Moses. You don't know how we discuss things when you're not around. Why do you think you have the freedom to come against him when I have decided that he's the person to whom I will give clarity on matters on which you may not have clarity? You don't know how God and your leader interact when you're not around. So add this to the list of things of which you are not aware and don't criticize your leader as if you know more than you do. Here's the last thing. I hope you're still with me because you need to hear this. Recognize that your, your ministry may hang in the balance. Uh, Miriam seems to be the leader in this little coup, in this little rebellion, and so she gets the brunt of the discipline. Now, don't overread either part of that. Not every story about a woman is a story about women. In this case, it's about Moses and Aaron and Miriam, and Miriam is the, is the one who seems to be taking the charge, and so she's punished with this skin, this temporary leprosy, and then it's recovered, but she has to like go away and, 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 and go through this process of purification, and it may seem like the punishment is random, like, why are you getting a skin disease? Because you spoke against your leader, but it's not random. Hopefully you remember enough from your semester one OT class to understand this. To be clean is to be fit for God's presence and service. Cleanness and uncleanness are not exactly about morality per se. It's about you being prepared and ready to be near God and to speak on his behalf. And the worst thing about a skin disease for Miriam is not the itching. It's the fact that it renders her unclean. She's no longer able to be near God or to perform service on his behalf. Miriam was a strong person, an important leader in her own right, a prophetess, but because of her arrogance, she was forced away from her post. Her ministry was put on hold and the whole community suffered because of her silencing. See, the problem wasn't just that she wasn't called to lead. That wasn't even the issue, she was. It was that her inability to follow rendered her temporarily unfit to do just that. And the impact wasn't just on her. I need you to see this verse, 12, 15. I need you to see this part again, because you will miss it if you don't look closely. Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. If you don't want to keep the church from going where God wants to take her, 
learn to follow. You must learn to follow today so that when the time comes, you may be ready to lead. It's probably a coincidence of the English language, but I've always found it interesting that the word intern and infant aren't radically different words. We all know that we had to crawl before we could walk, but sometimes we forget that we had to be carried before we could crawl. So you wanna lead, good for you, lead well. But first, well in the church there is one Lord, one master, one Messiah, one King. It's not me, it's not you. To belong to the church is to not be in charge. We are the church. We are, first and foremost, followers.